first met, she was a tropical storm. Our rough winds and rain clouds and heat. She was a little bit dangerous and a little bit crazy. But her loving was oh so sweet. She grew into a hurricane, destroying everything in her path. I swore I would love her forever. There was Oh, I just had to kiss her. My head was spinning. You know that I kind of like the vertigo. Then she turned into a Texas tornado. Funnel cloud, 2,000 feet high. Sucked me up and spit me out. Leaving nothing of value behind. Run, baby, run. 
Well, welcome to this week's edition of the Wispy Mop Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series. I'm your host, Todd, middle initial C, Walker. Yes, that's right. It is me, and we have been listening to the song Natural Disaster from the 2019 released CD, Absolute Surprise, by a gentleman who hails out of the greater Baltimore, Maryland area named Craig Cummings, and he's affectionately referred to by our good friend Rod DC as The Voice. And The Voice is on the phone with me right now. Craig, how are you? I'm doing well, Todd. How are you? I am well, and I played that song for a reason. Not so much because of the whole thing we've been going through for the last 10 months or so with the the coronavirus, although that is sort of a, (laughs) depending on who you believe, a natural disaster or maybe not. But anyway, but it is just a, it is a unique song of all the songs you do in the way that you begin it because you speak rather than then sing right off the bat. And it's, I love the way you put the lyrics together. Uh, you use alliteration and many other things. And is that typical of the way you write a song? Well, all the songs that I write are very, um, like, lyrically focused. Uh, you know, unlike a lot of pop music where sometimes the lyrics aren't really as important as the beat. In my songs, the lyrics are always at uh, at the front of the line in terms of their importance. Um, so in that respect, I would say yes. Um, you know, what's a little bit unusual for me, I guess, with Natural Disaster is that um, I write a lot of upbeat music, as I'm sure you know. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I don't always write a lot of songs that are actually humorous um and i think this one the lyrics in, at least in some cases kind of make you laugh and that's perhaps a little bit different for me um the other thing i would add about this song that was interesting is that um when it was released you know i i hired a radio promoter um and one of the things that you have to do when you hire a promoter is you come up with this one sheet and and you, among other things, you tell them, like, what do you think are the three or four, like, best songs um, that people, uh, the DJs would want to play? And that was not a song on the album that I listed as my top three or four. But when I go back and look at what happened in terms of what radio stations played the music and how often did they play songs and what songs did they play? That song was one of the most played songs of any of the ones on the album. Well, you know, that, that makes sense to me and I'll tell you why. Um, a friend of mine opened for Janice Ian, gosh, 15 years ago, I think in Frederick, she played at the Kuzmal theater at Frederick community college and he opened. And at the end of the concert, you know, She's out there selling CDs and schmoozing, and he has his table set up and so forth. And hardly anybody came to his table because he was the opener and she's the headliner. They're there basically to see her. And we were chatting, and he said that the songs on his CD were all terrific, but the the CD was missing one thing. And he goes, well, what's that? And she said, well, hold on a second. She called her associate over and said, what's our most popular CD? And the girl hands this CD, holds it up. And she says, why did the people buy that? And the girl said, because there's a song, and I've forgotten the name of it. It's a humorous song. Uh-huh. 
So that is probably why natural disaster gets played so much because it's humorous. It's yeah. different from it's, what, yeah. It, yeah, it is. And it's also popular. Like when I do live shows, um, I always get great reaction to that, to that piece. Mm-hmm. Now you mentioned that you hired a radio promoter. So how did that work out? Uh, it worked out really well. Um, the, the promoter that I used uh, for this record was different from uh, what I had used previously. And um, the company is called Twin Vision. They operate out of New York. Um, and uh, I got played on over 200 radio stations. Um, some radio stations might have only played a song once or twice. Other stations played songs many, many times. Um, and I also, uh, the song ended up, uh, at number 25 on the national roots music chart. Wow. Uh, and stayed there for probably five or six weeks, which I was really thrilled about. Oh my gosh. Yes. Now, did um, you, when you hired the promoter, did you think anything like that would happen or was it just more hopeful? Uh, well, <laughs> Yes, I, I mean, I, you know, it's not cheap to hire a radio promoter, so I certainly was hoping for some good results. <laughs> but, but, but I will say that um, the results that I got exceeded my, my expectations in most cases. There were a few things that, that didn't happen that I was hoping for, but all in all, if I look at, look at the whole thing, I was more than pleased. And, you know, I'm, I'm working on a I actually just finished work on a new album now, and I'm sure I'll hire the same promoter to um, to work with my new record when it's ready to go out. Now, how did you find your music promoter? I know you said this is a different one from previous, but how do you go about doing that? Well, in this case, um, I I had talked to other uh, other songwriters, other, other musicians who were releasing music and asked them who they were using. And, you know, I got a couple different names and I did my research. I talked to people to see kind of how they wanted to handle things and, um, and kind of settled on Twin Vision, uh, not only because they were recommended by someone that I know and trust, but because I got a good vibe from them when I talked to them on the phone and I looked at people that they had worked with in the past and felt like they were pretty well established and knew what they were doing. Well, it seems to have worked. Yeah, I was like I said, I was thrilled with uh, with the outcome for um, absolute surprise, and hopefully, uh, we'll get the same kind of results. Uh, you know, when we release the new record, which is the new record is going to be called "The Gulf Between Us." Mm-hmm. And, well. Um, and, and I was going to say the gulf between us, that could, that could be a bunch of different meanings, but you tend to write, or at least in the songs that I'm familiar with, and I've listened to all your, your CDs, but I've listened to you mostly live um, at whether it's the Frederick Coffee Company or whether it's at Brewers, at the now defunct Brewers Alley Monday Night so- Showcase series. But a lot of your songs seem to relate to your personal life whether loosely or you, you mean it that way, that's just the way it comes across. Is that part of the way you approach writing? Well, sure. I mean, it's, you know, 
it's hard to separate your your personal life from what you write. I mean, not not all songs that I write are just about me or something that's going on, mm-hmm. but in almost every song, there's a line or you know a an element in it that somehow is part of my own reality. You know what I mean? Um, the song may not be about me, but there might be one little piece of me in there somewhere that only I know, or maybe my wife Sandy knows because she knows me that well. But, um, you know, it's hard to separate and keep yourself out of the songs, even when you're trying to write about things that aren't directly about you, per se. Mm-hmm. The Gulf Between Us is an album that's about the things that keep people apart. Um, and so some of the songs are social political and some of them are about relationships and some of them are about people who leave us long before we wish they would. And, you know, we're left behind to pick up the pieces and figure out where we go from here. No. So, um, yes. No, no, finish your thought and then I'll come back with it. No, 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 that was it. Just okay. to say that, um, you know, there's lots of things that divide us. And I tried to uh, write write a, a collection of songs that explored the different things that keep people apart. Because God knows, in these days and times, um, there's so many things that keep us apart and keep us separate from one another and keep us from hearing one another that um, it just seemed like the right time to write an album like that. Now, in your previous CDs, uh, recordings... Did you do it, approach them from a concept like this one, or is this the first time you've, you've attempt, come up with an idea and then tailored the songs to the idea? Oh, they're, they're all theme-based. Uh, you know, as a, somebody who grew up listening to music in the 70s in particular, when the 70s songwriters, you know, were, um, were all over the radio, it's hard for me to shake that notion that albums should have a theme of some sort it could be a very pronounced one or it can be a little bit more loose like for example the absolute surprise um, record the the theme the operating theme in that record was um, a working class guy gets off of work and he's on his way home and he stops into a bar to have a beer before he goes home and he puts some money in the jukebox. And the, the working theory behind it was like, what kind of music would a guy like that want to hear? You know, after a hard day of work, what might he what might he play to just kind of kick back and relax and try to find some element of enjoyment? And so the the short answer to that is as you listen to the songs, um he would want to hear a lot of different things, fast, some slow, some loud, some soft, some country, some rock and roll. And so that record in particular has a lot of different kinds of music on it. Um, whereas the album before that, Gone Baby Gone, that was a concept record about the demise of a long-term relationship. And I got the idea for that album because I was running to, into all these people that I knew whose long-term relationships, their marriages or whatever were, 
were um, disintegrating, um, and they were in their 50s and 60s and trying to figure out, like, how, how do I live life as a single person when I've been with another person for 15, 20, 30, 40 years? And um, so I wrote a series of songs about that. Um, the one before that, of course, the Whisper and Low album, that was like what I call my uh, country road trip soundtrack. So, yeah, I'm a theme person and every album I write has to have some at least loose fitting theme uh, for me to feel good about it. Now, how do you come up with the specific song ideas? Is it, uh, and I'm reading a book by Jeff Tweedy from Wilco right now, and it's write your first song. If I'm, I, I think I'm. Oh stating. yeah, I know about that. Oh, I'm I sorry, it's called. It, but it, I know about that. Yeah, it's called How to Write One Song. Is really what it is, and um, you know he writes like I do. He's kind of he keeps a central theme going, but he's all over the place around that theme. But the um, how do, and he mentions in there, and I agree with him that we all who are songwriters or writers of poetry or whatever write differently. Some of us play the guitar and we come up with a little chord progression or or riff. And then we kind of spit a line out that goes with it. Or sometimes we sit down and write lyrics and then try to find the chords and everything. How do you do it? Um, I do it in a bunch of different ways, really. Um, I guess I would say most often I start with the words. um, And then once the words are at least partly done, then I'll start, you know, coming up with a riff or some chords that fit what I'm writing. But then there are some times when lyrically um, I don't have a ton of ideas flowing through my head. And in those cases, then maybe I'll put together a chord progression or some riff with a chord progression. And then from that, ideas start to spew out. So there isn't any one particular way I do it, but I would say that I start with the lyrics more often than not. And and I know it. Each song is going to be different, but if you could average out the time span for how long it takes you from the original thought to what you consider the final version of that song, how long would it be on average? <laughs> uh, well, that's really changed over the years. I have to tell you. You know, earlier in my career. Um, I I didn't spend nearly as much time honing songs as I do now. So, um, whereas, you know, maybe 10 or 12 years ago, I might've, you know, given you the answer to that question and said, Oh, I don't know, three or four hours. Now I would tell you it's probably more like 15 or 20. Mm -hmm. And it can be even more than that. For example, like I have this song, that um, I was playing earlier today and it's called arresting and the whole song is filled with all these criminal justice metaphors. And I've been writing that song for about four years (laughs) and I've never been able to get the lyric exactly like I wanted it until recently. And so there were times when I put it aside and I, just ignored it for a while and then when I wanted to write and I was looking for ideas I'd bring that back up and I'd work on it some more 
and then I put it down. I'd work on it some more, and it, it's finally now in a place where it's I consider it done. Um, now what? But, but I, but you know, I've learned over time because I've taken songwriting classes and talked to a lot of other songwriters and stuff like that. And over time, I've come to realize that um, if you want to write a really good song, most of the time it takes time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you can spit spit out a good idea, and you can spit out a rough sketch of what you want, but most most times it takes a while to get it really just like you want it. Now, in that particular song that you're referring to, the what changed? Do you think this past year that allowed you to move forward with it? Did you have have more time to work on it, or is it just something in the atmospheric universe that just kind of <laughs> landed on you and you went, aha, I got it. <laughs> it. Well, actually it was mostly the chorus, like the verse, the, the lyrics to the verses have been done for a while. And the lyrics to the chorus, I just, I just couldn't get it where I wanted it. I, it it's a little bit hard to explain. It was just a gut thing, you know, where you sing it and you read it. And you think about it, and you listen to recordings that you make of it, and you go, oh, no, it's not quite there yet. So you keep on tinkering with it until you finally get to the point where you go, okay, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I went to this um, this uh, concert and songwriting workshop one time um, with um, Slade Cleves. I don't know if you are familiar with his work, but Slade's a, a Texas songwriter, and um he was giving a songwriting workshop and I asked him the question in the workshop. I said, how do you know when a song is finished? And his answer to me was, they're never really finished. You just walk away from them. (laughs) (laughs) And I, and I thought that was an interesting, an interesting concept and that there was a lot of truth to that because, you know, if you want to be, um, if you want to go crazy, you could tinker forever and and ever and ever and never stop. But at some point, you just have to realize that whatever you've got there, that's the best it's going to get. And so if it's not a great song, it's not a great song. Every song you a person writes isn't going to be great. Some are, some aren't, you know, um, and at some point you walk away. <laughs> now, do you knowingly sit down and say, I'm going to do verse, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, chorus, or do you, or is it just, does the song tell you how that's going to work? Uh, the song tells you, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't start out with that notion at all. Um, uh, you know, it's interesting. Like a lot of times now, um, when I go to write a song, first part of the song that I really focus on is the chorus, um, which didn't necessarily used to be the case, but um, I don't need to tell you how important the chorus is to a song, because typically that's the part that people sing along to. That's right. It's the that's hook. the part that mm-hmm. sticks in people's heads long after you're done playing the, the song for them. And so a lot of times I, I focus on the, the chorus first, and then I ask myself kind of, you know, what is, what is this, what are the lyrics to the chorus telling me 
about what the song needs to be. And then I kind of try to map out from there what the different verses are going to be about. And then ultimately whether or not I think it's in need of a bridge. And for those folks listening who are not songwriters, explain to them the difference between a bridge and a chorus. Well, the, the chorus is like the theme of the song. Um, she's a natural disaster, makes everyone run for cover. She's a natural disaster. Don't try to be her friend. Don't try to be her lover. So that's the, that's the, the, the message that you're trying to get across. The bridge, or the Beatles used to call it the middle eight, um, is usually not all songs have bridges. And typically, if you put a bridge in a song, it's because there's something that you want to say in the song that's a little bit different uh, or is coming from a little bit um, a little bit different place than the lyric and the lyrics in the verse and chorus are are coming from. Yes. Now, do you find bridges are more difficult for you or choruses? Oh, the bridges are harder. Are they? Yeah, the bridges are harder for me. Like I say, uh, I, I I think I've always been kind of pretty good at coming up with songs that have good choruses that people can remember and sing. And I guess that's because, I mean, you know, when I first started listening to music when I was seven or eight years old, uh, you know, I was a huge Beatles fan. And, you know, nobody wrote better choruses than the Beatles did. That's true. And, and, you know, so I think that kind of just got ingrained in my brain at an early age that good songs have some aspect about them that is memorable to people. And if you can write a song where a person can hear it one or two times and they can sing along, then you've accomplished something good. Well, that brings up your musical history. How did you start your musical journey and did it always involve a guitar? Did it have other instruments? What, how did it all go? When did it actually start? <laughs> well, when I was seven years old, um, my mother wanted me to take piano lessons. So I was like, okay, sure. And, uh, I took piano lessons for four years and, you know, I think, I was doing quite well, um, but my parents and my teacher just bugged me day in and day out unmercifully about practicing and practicing and practicing and practicing. And, you know, when you're seven, eight, nine, ten years old, there's plenty of other things you want to be doing. You, oh, know? Yeah. you want to be outside with your friends. And I mean, you know, I played baseball, I played football, I played basketball, I did all kinds of stuff. And um, I just got, it just got to the point where I couldn't stand them hassling me about it anymore. And so I quit. And right after I quit piano, um, my parents had given my um, younger brother um, this cheap plastic guitar uh, and my, my, my brother has like really no 
musical aptitude. And he kind of looked at the guitar like it was, you know, a stranger. And I picked it up and started teaching myself how to play. And by that time, I was about 12 years old. And then I taught myself how to play. And um, my performing career went on from there. And then I spent a lot of time in my teens um, as a front man. In other words, not playing guitar with a band but just being the lead singer in a band. And, um, and then in my later teens, and as I got into college, that's when I started doing solo sh shows. Um, and then I played with the band and then it just kind of went from there going back and forth between playing solo and playing with a band and playing in duos and trios. And, you know, I've been in any number of bands and, and configurations over the years. Now, has most of your musical being been electrified or acoustic? Uh, it's been uh, pretty pretty evenly split, I would say. Perhaps a little more acoustic. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I've been in plenty of rock and roll bands. I've been in new wave bands. I've been in country bands. So, you know, I, I've, I've done plenty of both for sure. Well, you, you currently play, or at least the last time I've, I've seen you, um, your main instrument is a Gibson J200, and I think you have a Guild. Isn't it a Guild, which is your second guitar? Or well, was? Yeah, I have, a Guild, uh, I have a Guild D50 that I bought back in like 1974 or 73 mm -hmm. or something like that, um, and I still play that a good bit, but um, a few months ago, I bought another Gibson. I bought a J45, and uh, I really love that guitar. Um, so now, mostly, I play the two Gibsons more than more than anything. Well, the the difference between a J200, which is a jumbo, for those folks who are not guitar players, which is a jumbo, a large-bodied guitar with maple back and sides, and a J45, which is a rounder-shouldered dreadnought with mahogany back and sides, totally different sound coming from them. True. Very true. Yeah, the the J two hundred is a little brighter and a bigger sound with a with a very substantial bottom end. Um, the J forty five is um, very well balanced, and um, it, it's got a different kind of a neck. And um, even though it it doesn't have this um, the same body size as the J two hundred, it still has a big sound to it. Mm -hmm. Now, do you Somebody was telling me, and, and you know, like I'm not, I'm not a guitar junkie in the sense that I work on all my guitars and I know every little thing about every guitar, and I, that's not my uh, that's not my thing. Um, I'm much more of a singer songwriter that focuses on songs and words and melodies than the technical aspects of my guitar. But I know what I like, and I know it sounds good to me. Mm -hmm. And Gibsons, uh, I've decided over the years that Gibsons just have the kind of sound that that I like. Mm -hmm. I know plenty of people who play Martins and they play Guilds, and you know they're all beautiful guitars. Gibsons just work for me and for my sound. Now, uh, did you buy your Gibson as a new guitar or a resale? A, a new. I bought it new actually. Mm -hmm. uh, I bought so it new, and I and I bought it online. <laughs> oh, did you? 
Yeah. Well, you kind of almost have to in today's world. I was at Making Music in Frederick about two hours ago buying guitar strings. And I always, my first stop, I say hi to everybody and I point to the guitar room and they go, yep, go ahead. And I went back <laughs> and they probably had 20 tailors. They're both a Taylor and a Martin dealer amongst other things, but those are the two high end or lines that have both high end and low end in them. And the tailor side of the wall or the room had, a, like I said, about 20 different guitars and they had two Martins. And I went back and I said, gosh, you're Martin Wally because we can't get them. He said, we called the other day, and he said, what can you send us? They said, well, we can send you some LXs, which is the lower yeah. price line. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he says, oh, okay, that'd be great. Send them. He goes, we'll send them in late November. He, <laughs> says, he says, you'll have them for Christmas. And he goes, well, what about the rest of the year? He goes, we have nothing to send you. And I think what has happened is because the manufacturers or the builder building companies, especially the large ones, have had to reduce their workforce or – and sometimes shut down, especially last spring, or they're working on a reduced number of people. They can't produce the number for the dealers who have demand because so many people are going to be at home more. They want, they've, they've gone out and buy just like recording equipment. A lot of re home recording equipment is, is sold out or, or running off the shelves. So you were very fortunate to get that. Yeah. You know, it was funny. Um, because I, um, uh... The, the my J forty five is a um, like a the color of red wine. Oh wow! It's a it's a really interesting looking guitar. It's the color of red wine with a uh, a white pickguard. And um, I had seen um, a, another musician playing uh, at an antique Gibson that was red. Um, and I always loved the way that it looked. And um, I just got to the point where, you know how, I don't know if you do this or not, but I'll bet you do, Todd. You know, when you get this idea in your head that there might be this guitar that you're, that you would like, you start like looking at it online <laughs> and then you read about it. Then you look at it online again and then you read about it. And you go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And finally you just go all oh, the hell with it. Yep. I'm buying it. <laughs> That's why I have way too many guitars. Yep. Yeah. Well, me too. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of, I that, have, I have two different Alvarez's. I have, uh, I have a Taylor, I have a guild, I have two Gibson's, I have a, um, um, a, a guitar that was made by a guy who had a company in Richmond called Guitar Works that no longer exists. And then I have my electrics, like I have a, a Tele and I have a Godin. Um, so, you know, I have no shortage of, of guitars, but, you know, most of the time when I buy a guitar, it's only after I've looked at it a zillion times and read about it a zillion times and finally decided, okay, I'm going for it. Now, when you search for a guitar or you get that guitar in your, your head, is it because of the visual of the guitar or the sound you may have heard someone else play or you might have read about someone, they, they play this particular model? What draws you to those guitars? Well, it's a combination of things. Um, one is um, hearing other people play the guitar, and so you're, you're able to hear the kind of sound that that guitar produces. Um, and then also, um, 
physically what the guitar looks like. So um, I'm a person who's not a huge fan of um, your typical like blonde spruce top and, you know, mahogany back and sides. Like, not that I think there's anything wrong with that. It's just that I'm more prone to like um, darker sunbursts. I have a black guitar with a white pick guard. Um, and now I have a like a uh, wine red guitar with a white pick guard. So I'm just kind of drawn visually to things that are a little bit different. But I have to I have to at least have heard that guitar played by someone else so I can have a sense of what it what it sounds like before I actually pursue the idea that I might actually buy one. Mm -hmm. And especially with Gibson's being, you know, typically $2,000 or more, you know, it's, it's a huge outlay of cash. So you want to make sure that you're focusing on things where, you know, you're going to like the sound. Well, I love the description of the, because I have seen photos of the, the J45s, the, the, what I call the colored line or the white pick guard line. Uh, in different colors, and I'm attracted to that myself. I have a very inexpensive recording king, which is blue with mother of toilet seat fretboard and a white pick card. <laughs> and, you know, I've played it at my Sunday songwriters once or twice, but that's, it's not a good enough guitar to really go out and play because it just doesn't have the sound. But uh -huh. you, I always have referred to you as the beach cowboy because you wear a cowboy hat very often. and you I'm at the beach right now. Actually. Are you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and you do have a tendency when you perform to wear shirts, which would be, most people would consider to be Western wear. And when you combine that with your cowboy hat, you know, that's your look. So that style of guitar, which is almost like rockabilly, sort of, fits mm -hmm. with your persona really, really well. Well, thank you. You know, you try to, you know, as somebody who performs a lot, and has been doing it for a while. I mean, you, you do try to come up with some persona, some way of presenting yourself that's fairly consistent um, because it's part of your brand. Mm -hmm. And um, I think all, all that you've described is part of what my brand is at this point. Well, and it's good that you're consistent with that because I'm looking at the all three of your CDs, and I'm actually on craigcummings.bandcamp.com for those of you folks who might want to check out uh, Craig's music and maybe purchase some music. You can buy digital downloads and so forth or the actual compact disc um, from the, the site. Or if you know him personally, I'm sure he has a supply in his, his basement or his closet that he'd be more than happy to meet you over coffee someday, socially distanced right. in today's world. <laughs> But in, in all three of the cover art, you're wearing your cowboy hat. Yep. And if I'm not mistaken here, you've got a plaid shirt in both Absolute Surprise and Gone Baby Gone. And, well, you can't see the shirt in the in the uh, Whispering Glow. Well, yeah. Yeah. I had I actually had on a black sport coat on that one. So. Oh, okay. But the way that... The way that the, the, the cover photo is done, you can't really tell. Right. Now, going back to guitars, the for many years, I've seen you with a sound hole pickup. Is yeah. that what, Do you have that in your J45 as well? Actually, it's interesting that you asked me that question because I went with a different pickup for that guitar. Um, I had been reading a lot about the, um, the 
the LR Bags um, lyric pickup. Mm-hmm. And so I decided to try one of those because I use I use the the LR Bags uh, M1A um, sound hole pickups on all my other guitars, and I I mean I, I think it's an excellent pickup. I've always liked it, but I decided to try something different. And what's different about um, what's different about those pickups is that the sound hole pickups are really humbuckers, and um, the um, the lyric pickup is a different concept, where it um, the the microphone mounts inside the guitar, and there's um, a small amount of space between the actual little microphone and the soundboard, and so it creates a different kind of a sound. And when when I was um, recording this new album. I used the um, the J45, and uh, Gant, the engineer, um, just raved about the sound that we were able to get um, for recording by using that guitar and that pickup. It gives you a little bit more natural guitar sound and a little bit less of the kind of amped up guitar sound. I don't know if that makes any sense to you. but Oh, it does to me for sure, yes. So, um, you know, it's interesting. Sometimes you try something new and you never know what you're going to get. And in this case, um, I was really pleased um, at, at the different kind of sound that I got. And then going forward, you know, as I go, when I go back into the studio the next time, whenever that is, then I've got these two Gibson guitars with different pickups and different, slightly different sounds that I can go to based on what I'm looking for in any particular song. So it gives me a little bit more uh, variability in what I can do. Well, a lot of the guitar uh, players who listen to the podcast are interested in gear. So we've talked about guitars. We've talked about pickups. What brand string and what gauge do you use? <laughs> I use uh, Diodario EJ-19s. Mm-hmm. Um, they're a phosphor brown, phosphor bronze string, and they're called bluegrass strings, which means they're um, light on top and heavy on the bottom. Mm-hmm. And so, um, they're not expensive strings, uh, but they have pretty good life, and they're just a really—they um, just have a really nice. Uh, bright and ringing sound to them that I've always liked. And I believe me, I've tried a zillion different kinds of strings, um, including, you know, the, the expensive strings that are coated and supposed to last, you know, three times longer than the other ones. I didn't find that the strings in my book worth the money, not that they were bad, but they weren't, you know, almost double, um, the uh, double the the worth of the cheaper ones, and so I use the EJ nineteens. Mm-hmm. I think I I pay about six bucks a set for them, roughly, and uh, I, I'm real happy with them. Now you use a flat pick. I do. Now, what uh, do you have a specific brand thickness that, or color that you like? I you know I have a bunch of I use some different picks depending on different songs. So, um, 
I use a little bit um, lighter, more flexible pick. If there's something like that I'm strumming, that's almost like a, like a bluegrass strum that's real fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I use a, a bigger, a, a, la- a larger and, and heavier gauge pick. Uh, for things where I might be doing more slow flat picking or strumming like in a country song or I might be vamping and playing some muted chords and stuff like that. So the pick for me depends on the song. Mm -hmm. Now, do you use a capo? I do. I just found these new capos that I'm I'm working with now. They're called roller capos. Uh Uh-huh. Are you familiar with those? I am. I have one. Yeah. Do you like it? You know, when I've used it, I do. I'm I'm a low profile guy, and it's not low profile, so I tend not to use it because of that reason. And to be honest with you, I set it down somewhere and I can't find it. So I, <laughs> <laughs> I have well, so many boxes of because I've been writing that gear article for the Fame newsletter for so long that I I don't know which box holds which. So, but yes, no, and they're what they're great for is what live performance. Yeah, you can just use your thumb or your hand and change the position of it without having to unclamp it. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you know when you're on stage, or like it, there are times when I'm playing outdoors and it's starting to get dark a little bit, and when you want to move your capo around. Um, it can be a little bit hard to see to make sure you're not, you know, that you've got the capo aligned properly and that the strings aren't out of kilter or whatever. And with these roller capos, um, you just put the thing on and just slide it up and down the neck. And I've, um, I've only been using them for about maybe two months now, but uh, I'm finding that I really like them quite well. Yeah, you're one of only two people I know who are trying them or using them. And again, I started using it mainly for the gear article and I set it down and it's in what, like I said, it's in one of the boxes and I really should pull it out and leave it in a guitar case. And I've been saying this for years that each guitar case should have a capo, an extra set of strings and some picks in case I ever, you know, get to a gig and, and cause sometimes you open the guitar case, you go, Oh gosh, I forgot the capo. I forgot the guitar picks. So that would be a good one to leave in one of the cases. And then that's the capo for that guitar. That's a great idea. My, uh, my, uh, downfall is, um, if I'm going to forget anything, it's not picks and it's not capos. It's the strap. Ah, <laughs> uh, I guess the good thing about because that is, a, yeah, I don't have a strap for every guitar. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could, I just don't. And so I have to make sure I remember, you know, to look in the case before I go out for a gig and say, is the strap that I want for this guitar, is it in there? <laughs> or is it in a, in a different case and I got to take it out to make sure I have it when I get to the gig? Well, and that brings up another question. And, and although now there's not that much live music, um, in the warm months this past summer, lots of the wineries and the farm breweries who had outdoor pavilions had live music, but next to no indoor music. A few had tents they put up, so it was kind of semi-outdoor, semi-indoor, but you had breezes blowing through. What is your live, for your solo performances, what's your your setup as far as P 
PA, microphones, things like that? Oh, so um, I've gone minimalist. <laughs> and um, most of the, when I have a solo gig, um, I use only um, a Fishman uh, amplifier that has two inputs, one for the guitar and one for the vocal. I put it on a guitar stand. It only weighs about 20 pounds. It's really loud if I need it to be. And it's so easy to set up and tear down. I can do a setup in 10 minutes, a tear down in less than that. Um, and that's typically what I use when I'm by myself. If I'm playing with um, another person or if I'm playing with other people in a trio or a four-piece band or whatever, then uh, I, have a, uh, I have a PA that I use. Um, uh, a Mackie board and some electro voice um, speakers. Um, but, you know, since I do most of my work as a solo, I would say the little Fishman amp setup is what I use most frequently. Well, I know that the first time, well, maybe it wasn't the first time. Well, yes, it was the first time I had seen you perform live outside of Brewer's Alley was, gosh, I think it was somewhere in the Columbia area, and it was a little coffee shop, bar, uh, sandwich shop, and it was your birthday, your 60th birthday, if I'm not mistaken, and you were using a studio condenser mic, and that's what you're singing into in the cover shot on your Whispering Low CD. Do you still use that style of mic, or do you have more of a dynamic handheld type of mic that you use now? Uh, I have both. So it depends on, it depends, like if, if, I'm, a, if I'm indoors and I'm in a, um, a club or a restaurant or wherever where um, people are, are really most listening mm -hmm. and there's not a lot of background noise, then I use the condenser mic. Um, but if I am at an, in a noisy place, um, then I'll, I tend to use the, uh, unidirectional dynamic mic. Mm -hmm. Now you've got a new CD that you've mentioned that you just completed. Now, where do you record? Who do you record with? I record with Gant Kushner in um, Gizmo Studio, which Gant lives in uh, Silver Spring. And uh, Gant's had his own studio for many years. Um, and he's also plays uh, guitars and basses on all of my records, or my last three records, I should say. Because Gant, in addition to being an amazing engineer, um, is just one of the finest guitar players you could ever meet and certainly one of the top guitar players in the dc area now how did you find him or did he find you or was it asking around <laughs> and someone said oh you should call this fellow uh actually um i got invited to um to sing a few songs as part of a merle haggard tribute show um dominic sakala mm -hmm. was putting on um a tribute show and um Merle Haggard and I showed up to rehearse and met Gann at rehearsal and then got a chance to talk with him more uh, I think we did that show a couple different times 
And in the course of our conversations, you know, he told me that he had a recording studio and that, you know, this is, you know, kind of what he did besides perform. And at that time, I was getting ready to make the Gone Baby Gone record, and I hadn't decided where I wanted to record yet. Uh, the first two records I made um, were done at Clean Cuts Records in Baltimore. And so when I met Gant and we kind of hit it off on a personal level, I decided to go ahead and uh, give it a shot and record with them. And I've never looked back. <laughs> well, and, it, you know, it's interesting. The And it, again, fits your personality and your songs. The sound you get on both those CDs has a little bit of a country flavor to it um, or to them. Is that something you planned or that was just in discussion with uh, Gant and the two of you decided let's let's give this kind of a lean towards that um, it's definitely a very upbeat sound um, what I call radio friendly type of sound well I mean I, I think it is having that kind of a sound is purposeful um, but I'll, I'll tell you a quick little story about that whole idea um, Back in 2006, maybe, um, I had, there had been a period of time when um, I wasn't really performing. I had been in a band for many, many years. And um, the band broke up and I had a lot going on in my personal life. I had a very busy day job at that point. My kids were teenagers and all that, and um, I had I had taken a bit bit of a break from performing, and uh, I was getting the itch to start up again and to start writing music again. And so I made a vow to myself that I was going to really like concentrate on trying to write on a regular basis, and I was going to go into it with no preconceived notions about how the songs were going to come out. In other words, like I didn't sit down and say, okay, like I'm going to write country songs or I'm going to write folk songs or I'm going to write blues songs. I just said, I'm going to write songs and however they come out, then that tells me that's what they're supposed to be. And so when I started writing a lot of music again in around 2006, 2007, what was coming out was of course songs that had a lot of country influences to them. And I said, well, I guess this is who I am because mm -hmm. this is how I write. And so I just continued down that path and I don't allow myself to get locked into it. If I, if I come up with a song that I really like, that isn't particularly country, depending on how it needs to fit into an album, I may orchestrate it in a way where it sounds a little more country than it might if I orchestrated it a different way. But pretty much it just comes out how it comes out for me, if that makes sense. It does. And when did you first begin penning your own songs? The first song I ever wrote, I was in fifth grade. So fifth grade, you're what, 10 years old, mm -hmm. I guess. And, um, at the time, the school I went to was putting on a musical. 
and um, my teacher was um, I was a, a young guy, and he was um, directing the musical, and they were having tryouts, and so uh, I had these two guys that were friends of mine, and um, I wrote lyrics to a Beach Boys instrumental song. The Beach Boys have this instrumental. It's called Summer Means New Love. And uh, it's on one of their, you know, earlier albums. And it just had a really cool surf quality to it, you know, with the guitars and stuff. And so I wrote words to that song. And then the three of us performed that song at the audition. And they they liked it so much, they actually wrote that song into the musical. Mm. And um, that was the first time I ever wrote a song. So from there, um, you know, when I got to, into my teens, I was, you know, early in my teens, I was more focused on just learning how to play guitar decently. Um, but as I got into my mid and later teens, that's when I really started writing more songs. So what, how many songs do you figure you have in your original catalog? Oh, geez. You mean whether they're good, bad, or indifferent? Correct. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't know. Geez. Uh, I would hundreds. Okay. How many, say, how many, hundreds. how many would you have in your catalog that you consider, um, good enough to play out? Uh, Probably 50 to 75. Mm -hmm. Which seems to be the, for someone who's been writing for a period of time, and when I say a period of time, 15 or 20 years plus, the, um, and again, not all of us are prolific, or we may be prolific for a five-year period and write 30 songs, and then they, the numbers just start dwindling as our, as we age for whatever reason, we get caught up in doing other things. But that's actually a very good number the, uh, and when you perform live, do you play solely your originals, or do you mix them up with cover tunes? How do you how do you work your your live sets? Uh, I, I I mix them up unless I'm doing a if I'm doing a concert, like you know when Brewers was open, and you guys would have me come as the feature artist, uh, and I've got you know forty minutes to do a set, then I'm playing all my own stuff. Mm -hmm. But if I'm doing a, a show that's, you know, three or four hours, typically I'm doing about 50 to 75 percent of my own stuff. And then, you know, 25 to 50 percent um, cover tunes, depending on the venue and, and that kind of thing. You know, some places um, that you play are really open to hearing your original music. Some places not as much, so I just try to read the crowd and uh, plan accordingly. Now, how do you go about choosing the cover songs that you're going to perform? Uh, well, they have to, first of all, it has to be a song that I love. Not just that I like, but that I love. Mm -hmm. Because there's so many songs to choose from. Why pick a song that you could care less about? And then second of all, it has to be, and this is really important. It has to be a song that works for me vocally 
and emotionally. And so there are songs that I love, but when I try to perform them, they just don't work for me. Mm -hmm. Either vocally, they're just not kind of right for me, or even though I love the song when I hear somebody else play it, like emotionally to me, it just doesn't click. What are, say, the top three or three of the top cover songs that you enjoy playing that work for you? Oh, geez. In other words, if you're in a, you're in a, a, yeah. a gig. So I realize that this changes, too. So oh, yes. if you ask me this question a year from now, I might give you a different answer. That's all right. Um, but, um, right now I would say, um, uh, you said three songs. So one song would be, um, Poncho and Lefty Mm -hmm. by Towns Van Zandt. Uh, I mean, that's a, just a remarkable song and it's been recorded by probably over 50 different people over time. Um, but whenever I sing that song, it just, it feels right. It feels like I was meant to sing it. Um, another song, um, that I really enjoy playing is, um, a song by, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Billy Currington. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, he is a top 40 country radio performer, singer, and, um, he's got this song, uh, that came out, I don't know. It's been a while ago now. It's called must be doing something right. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, I actually, the, uh, one of the co-writers of that song, Marty Dodson, is somebody that I took songwriting classes with um, for a number of years. Oh, that's cool. And um, and Billy Currington has a voice that has some similarities to mine. I'm not saying it sounds exactly like mine by any shot, but it's got some similarities. And um, it's just a really well-written kind of country pop tune. Um, and it just works for me vocally and it works on an emotional level for me. Um, I really enjoy um, playing that one as well. And then uh, lately I've been uh, delving into uh, some Tom Petty stuff that I enjoy playing. Um, I have a bunch of Dylan tunes I do. And one of my favorite all-time songwriters is Guy Clark. Yes. And uh, I play a lot of Guy's music. And while his voice is much different from mine, you know, Guy has more of a gravelly, you know, I mean, he was a a huge cigarette smoker. So that affected his vocal cords and gave him a certain kind of voice that non-smokers don't have. Um, But on an emotional level, his songs always work for me. Now, how about your songs? What are your top three Craig Cummings songs that you oh, you perform? <laughs> in other in other words, you're you're you've you've come back from the supermarket or wherever, and you the guitar is sitting in the corner. You grab the guitar. What's the first song you tend to sing? A Craig Cummings pen song that you tend to that's the song you go to for the first just to kind of warm up. Is there one? Yeah, yeah. I would say, uh, and again, this this changes over time. Uh, but I would say right now, the answer to that question is probably the song "Absolute Surprise." Mm-hmm. Um, you know that that's a song that when I wrote it, 
I knew right away that it was a a hit, so to speak. It was it was going to be the focus of the album, and um, and it ended up in the title cut, even though. Um, originally when I was making that album, I had a different title for the album in mind, but Sandy, my wife convinced me that the song was too good, um, to not make it the title cut. And so I ended up doing that. Um, I play that one pretty much at every gig, every gig I have. It's just got a nice, uh, big open sound to it. I, I like the story that the song tells. And it always just feels really good to sing it. Mm-hmm. Um, I also have um, a couple songs um, off of the, the, the new record um, that I play a lot. Uh, the Gulf Between Us is, is the title of the song as well as the title of the new record. Um, and I play that a good bit. Um, and then the title cut from Gone Baby Gone is a song, is a, a country ballad that I think just has a really beautiful melody and story. And uh, I play that song uh, pretty frequently as well. Well, speaking of the new CD, when do you plan on releasing that? Well, um, I have to, um, I have to talk with the the promoters and I have to get a date set up to have the the final tracks um, mastered. But, uh, I would anticipate that it's probably going to be released in February or March, late February or sometime in March. And I'm, right. I'm sure that will pop up on your, your Bandcamp site. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now, the um, I'm going to let you go here in a moment because we're, we're starting to wind down on our internal clock in my little mixer here. But the uh, <laughs> now there's a specific song that you emailed me that I'm going to play for the audience once you and I finish our phone call. What's the title of it? Uh, it's called Like Thieves. Like, L-I-K-E. Mm-hmm. L-I-K-E, Thieves, Like Thieves. Mm-hmm. We live our lives like thieves. So it's a song about, um, it's really a song about Im- immigrants who come to this country and um, are poor and they're struggling to get by. And it tells the story of um, as best I can, what life is like for a family who's um, barely scraping to get by and yet has hopes for much greater things uh, in the future. Well, I and, hope... um, mm-hmm. and I sent that to you uh, as a song to play um, because it has some very different things going on musically from anything I've ever done before. Um, a, non- a number of the songs on the new album have um, some Latin elements to them. Um, I've got violin, I've got accordion, I've got some Spanish-sounding guitar licks in there. And, um, and that particular um, cut doesn't have any drum kit, but it does have a djembe um, and a shaker. And so it's uh, musically, it's a little bit different from things I've done in the past. And I'm real excited about uh, putting out something that's a little bit different in that way. Now, was the idea to do that kind of Latinish theme or to change the, the, the music beds around 
was that a combination of you and Gant or just you saying, Hey, Gant, let's do something different. What can we come up with? Uh, well, it was me with the idea because I, I wrote, I have very strong feelings about what's going on in this country, particularly as it relates to what's going on down at the border for the last five or six years. And so, um, every year I go to, um, Arizona for a month because um, we have family out there and I hate the winters around here. So <laughs> we, we take a month and we go out to Arizona and we do a lot of hiking and I do a lot of songwriting and that kind of stuff. And um, I went down to the border, drove around, looked at what was going on and got a lot of ideas for songs. And so there are a few songs on the record that are about, the immigration situation and look at it from some different angles. And those are the songs that um, kind of have a Latin influence to them because um, they're about people who are trying to um, immigrate to our country and find um, safety and security um, when that's not a situation that they've come from. And so uh, going to Gantt, you know, the beauty in going to Gantt is saying, um, I, I'm looking for some Spanish sounding guitar in this song. What can you come up with? And he's so multi-talented and he can play so many different styles that he can, you know, on, in the blink of an eye, come up with a, a guitar part that is like just so perfect for what you're looking for that you just kind of shake your head and go, wow, you know, that, that's just terrific. Well, I look forward to the new CD, as I'm sure people listening. And again, you can find it when it's released at craigcummings.bandcamp.com, which is his uh, go-to website. And you can actually listen to some of the, the, the tracks on the CDs and then purchase them, the, um, which is a great way to do it. Since, obviously, when you go to um, standalone brick-and-mortar stores now, not many people have CDs out. Even if you go to Barnes & Noble, they have, the numbers of CDs have really dwindled. So now do you have any, um, and I'll bring this up really quickly before we go, do you have any I, um, thoughts of putting out LPs, you know, the traditional vinyl? <laughs> well, you know, I've thought about that a lot. But um, if my main audience or people in their 20s and 30s, mm -hmm. I would do it. But because my main audience tends to be people who are older than that and not inclined to buy vinyl, um, I don't think it would be a good use of my, sure. of my funds to do it. I mean, I would love to put out a vinyl record, but um, I just don't see that I would get the return. It's hard enough to get any return from CDs and downloads these days. Right. Because everybody wants to stream your music, which is all fine and good, except that every time somebody streams one of your songs, you make about a tenth of a penny. <laughs> a lot of people don't realize that and think we're exaggerating. But um, I'm, as a musician, I'm sure you know, Todd, that, that that's the truth of the matter. It is. I, I spoke with one songwriter, and he had a song that was played, gosh, it was probably thousands of times on Spotify or one of the, you know, the, the online uh, music beds, and he got a check for nine cents. 
Yeah. And it's like, gosh, you'd think, because in the old days when a song hit the radio and was played, you know, seven times in the day and people were rushed out, they bought the 45 RPM or the LPs and it just took off and they started, you know, making tons of money. Or, or the record company made tons of money, not necessarily right. the performer. But anyways, going back to the release, I look forward to it. And, uh, you know, if you can think of it, let me know when it's released so I can go to the website and, and order it. That'll be terrific. And I want to thank Will you for, for taking time out of your beach time, because today is actually a beautiful day, at least in Frederick. So I'm assuming it is nice down on the coast. It's beautiful here. And when I'm done, uh, Sandy and I are going to, wrap up and go walk on the beach and watch the sunset at the inlet in ocean city. Uh, well have a wonderful time. And again, thank you so much, Craig, for, uh, for joining me on the podcast. And Todd, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed talking to you and, uh, I'll see you soon. I hope. Yeah, I hope so too. Thanks again. Okay. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that was Craig Cummings affectionately referred to by Rod DC as the voice and you did hear his song at the beginning, Natural Disaster. Now we're going to listen to his song, Like Thieves. I work every day, I got a strong back. It isn't strength or purpose I lack Ten hours a day, six days a week Covers our rent and something to eat And we live our lives like thieves In shadows on dead-end streets Dreaming that one day we'll find a place to call our own They think of us like weeds Growing stubbornly out of the concrete Hoping that ignoring us Might make us go away We live our lives Like thieves The Wispy Mop Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series is produced by Todd C. Walker at the Wispy Mop Music Studio in Frederick, Maryland. All the music played on the podcast is played by permission from the artists. If you're enjoying the series, please feel free to share the link, wispymopmusic.podbean.com, or you can find it on either iTunes or Apple Podcasts. And again, I want to thank Craig Cummings for joining me today. We'll see you next time. barely open the door and we live our lives like thieves in shadows on dead end streets dreaming that one day we'll find a place to call our own they think of us like weeds growing stubbornly out of the concrete hoping that might make us go away
lot laid off and the rent is due Standing in line for boxes of free food Every little bit helps when you're close to the line Truth is we struggle all the time Yeah My oldest girl loves going to school Even though the rednecks can be And blonde and her eyes on blue What's a girl from Monterey to do? And we live our lives like these In shadows on dead-end streets Dreaming that one day we'll find a place To call our own They think of us like we Growing stubbornly out of the concrete Hoping that ignoring us might make us go away 